as one Republican described it to me, they're looking at trench warfare in the next year. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, August 29th. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston to talk about how Democrats can take back the House in 2024, and the road to a Democratic majority runs right through where they lost it in last year's midterms, the state of New York. Abby explains how Brooklyn's Hakeem Jeffries is already plotting his way to the speakership. And we do a little post-game analysis of the GOP debate last week, why Tim Scott whiffed, why Nikki Haley scored, and why Vivek Ramaswamy gets under everyone's skin. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Abby Livingston to talk politics. Abby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Peter. I'm a subscriber to Texas Monthly, by the way. I get it in print. Um, and there was a big splashy ad for uh, there's so many like ad inserts in Texas Monthly for, you know, retirement communities or vacation spots or homes or whatever. Uh, but there was a big splashy ad for Fort Worth. I'll uh, I'll send it to you on text tomorrow. I just thought you'd be interested in that. Well, I'm always Fort Worth, clearly. up for representing Funky Town. <laughs> hey, Abby, one of the big storylines out of the election in 2022 was that, surprisingly, Democrats almost kept the House. But the uh, New York races, uh, you know, they came up short in all of those competitive New York House races. Not all of them, most of them. It was a disappointment for Democrats. Uh, it made things tough for Kevin McCarthy, too, who's, you know, got a House Republican majority of only a handful of seats. From your reporting, if Democrats lost the House in New York State in 2022, uh, Hakeem Jeffries and company want to take back the House by going through New York in 2024. What's going on up there? Well, if you go back to 2022, everything that could go wrong for Democrats went wrong. And they had a very late map in redistricting that went very much against the Democrats. That's now in litigation. So they could get a map that works a lot better for them. You had a House campaign chairman at the DCCC, Sean Patrick Maloney, who was running the mm -hmm. national races, and he ended up losing his own reelection. You had a governor in Cuomo who resigned in disgrace. And you had a new governor, Kathy Hochul, who is actually a pretty good campaigner and won a special election in a Republican seat about 10 years ago, a little bit more than that. But she was very untested and unknown statewide. And crime really worked against the Democrats. So mm -hmm. the Democrats now look at this and say, hey, we've got some low hanging fruit. And it also just so happens that you have the House Democratic minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, from the Empire State. So there is a lot of pressure on him 
to deliver the house through his backyard. This is how Nancy Pelosi built her career. You know, when we were kids, California actually had some pretty conservative uh, Mm -hmm. regions. It was Reagan country, and she systematically won house seats year after year after year. And so that model is at play here. And so that's kind of where the state of play is right now. So Jeffries is from Brooklyn. Uh, that's his district, the eighth. And and it feels like, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of these seats that represent low-hanging fruit, these Republican seats, are in the New York City area. Among them, I would think, is George Santos's seat. <laughs> Absolutely. That feels like that might be gettable for Democrats. And from your reporting, it sounds like Republicans are rallying around someone to primary Santos to keep that seat in Republican hands. What other districts in the area are Democrats hoping to grab back? So uh, Long Island is a big place. It's not just the Santos seat. And then you also go up the Hudson River Valley, which is north of the city and starts extending into upstate. These are all generally in the New York City media market, which means they Mm -hmm. are very expensive places to run a campaign. What about Nicole Maliotakis on Staten Island? I mean, she defeated uh, Max Rose, who's kind of like an outspoken moderate, blue-collar, white dude, uh, Democrat, <laughs> a couple of years ago. That seems like it should be in play as well, right? Um, I am not seeing that at a glance on a lot of the House hmm. analysts' race ratings. And my gut is that district, Staten Island, is probably pretty friendly to Trump voters. The Staten Island seat is kind of competitive, but it tends to only fall in very big Democratic years. Um, it's mm. really hard for Democrats to win in a neutral year, mm. which is sort of where things look like they're headed at this point in the cycle. But we are still very, very early. Um, and neutral mm. means we're not really sure which way the wind is blowing and the seat mm. gains may be pretty small. And as one Republican described it to me, they're looking at trench warfare in the next year. Yeah. Also, like there's I was talking to one Democrat recently who was making the point to me that it used to be the case that presidential years, which is what the election will be next year, see a spike in Democratic turnout. And that's where Democrats kind of do better. Midterm years, you have high propensity Republican voters showing up, low propensity voters who lean Democrat not showing up. But now with Trump in the Trump era, it's interesting with polarization as well. If Trump is on the ballot in 2024, He just brings in people who aren't traditional Republicans. He motivates Republican voters and he motivates Democratic voters. It feels like one reason Democrats almost they kept the Senate last year and almost kept the House is because Trump wasn't on the ballot and Republicans generally are kind of unpopular. I'm just curious if like talking to strategists, if they think that's the case, that if Trump is on the ballot next year, I mean, then it is trench warfare, right? Like you have high Democratic turnout, but also possibly high Republican turnout in a way that wouldn't be the case were he not on the ballot. Sometimes Democratic operatives really have to be the smartest kids in the room and like to make big (laughs) predictions and know things before the rest of us and are very confident in this. And what's striking to me is how not confident they are when Mm. Trump is on the ballot. In 2020, they thought they were going to pick up a lot of seats and they ended up losing seats. So Mm. Trump has just thrown a wrench into the normal calculus that we've all used cycle after cycle. And sometimes it works for Democrats and sometimes it doesn't. I think a lot Mm. of it depends. For instance, my home state of Texas is not really that friendly of of Trump country. Mm -hmm. White suburban women um, and honestly, just a lot of suburban women just don't like him and it really doesn't play well. But then you go to a place like New Jersey or New York and it becomes a little bit more unpredictable. 
Abby, let's talk about the upper chamber in New York for a second. Kirsten Gillibrand, the incumbent senator, is up for re-election next year. Uh, she's, according to your reporting, uh, in Puck, she's planning to run up the score next year in her campaign for a third full term. She's doing, uh, you know, going to all these county fairs and doing a lot of retail stuff ahead of time. Remember, like, when she was first appointed to the Senate way back in the day, her political base was really actually upstate. Um, and that's why she was criticized when she ran for president in 2019 and 2020 for, you know, once being a little more of a hardliner on immigration, being a little more pro-gun because she came from a conservative part of the state. Uh, she's evolved, as politicians do over the years. Why does she want to run up the score? Is it to sort of box out potential threats in the future? I mean, like, I've always been curious why AOC doesn't challenge her in a primary. I feel like AOC would smoke Gillibrand on a primary. That's a complicated question. And it's important to remember there's more to New York than the city. But the strategy here, Gillibrand didn't have the greatest presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. But I think what a lot of people forget is she was sort of a DCCC staffers speak of her from the 2006 and 2008 cycles as the absolute star. She was a House candidate outside of Albany. This was the furthest reach of the Rahm Emanuel-led wave. It was unfathomable that this seat could fall to the Democrats, and she won it. And so she gets House politics. She gets how the DCCC yeah. works. A lot of senators just don't even want to think about the House. And so my sense is she's looking at this and uh, wanting to play her part and helping to win back the House. And, you know, it's also it is just so incredibly hard for Democrats to hold on to the Senate that they really do need to win the House if they want to have much power at all. Um, and especially since we the presidential also seems equally chaotic. We'll see if Hakeem has the juice to take back the House next year. Abby, I want to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you about your thoughts on the Republican presidential debate. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Welcome back to The Powers That Be, everybody. I'm joined by Abby Livingston. Abby and I both occupy the best and the brightest email that goes out Monday evenings. Uh, make sure you subscribe if you haven't already. I wrote this week my thoughts. I would say this is a just, you know, a little bit of an essay thought bubble that I had just about watching the debate. You know, my one of my big takeaways, Abby, was that it's so clear knowing some of these politicians personally, some of them I don't as well, but just watching them from a distance, how much all of them just despise Vivek Ramaswamy. Like, they want to shove this guy in a locker, give him a wedgie, give him a swirly, just get out of here, man. But he 
was the chaos agent on stage. Did you pick up on that too? Like Christy, Pence, Haley, DeSantis, Asa, like all these folks sort of came up in politics before Trump. And, you know, you even in the Tea Party era, you had to sort of work some angles, climb the ladder. And he is just offends all of their sensibilities. This guy showed up to politics yesterday and all of a sudden he's lecturing me on this and that. How dare he? Was that your impression as well? Absolutely. And that tends to happen in debates. I think Ted Cruz was probably that figure in 2016. Yeah. And I remember that like reading a piece at the time calling it the goat of the the primary. And that was before goat meant greatest of all time. It was a pejorative. <laughs> so absolutely. And I have a question for you. You wrote a piece about Tim Scott several weeks ago, sort of kind of going, I'm not sure so sure this this guy can go all the way. And it sort of came out in the debate. What was it you saw a month ago that like so many donors and pundits didn't see? One, have any of you actually met Tim Scott, which is <laughs> not like denigrating his charisma in a room, but it's not his party. Tim Scott's whole message and bit, and I saw him in Iowa speak to do two different audiences a couple weeks ago. It's biography. He's got a great story, came from a single mother, grew up poor in North Charleston, South Carolina in the low country. Um, very compelling. Exactly the kind of thing that would be compelling to a rich donor. <laughs> People like Tim Scott, but no one loves Tim Scott. And, you know, maybe he can make a compelling VP candidate. Although he did speak up and say that Mike Pence did the right thing by not certifying the results of the 2020 election. So we'll see if he's still on Trump's VP list after such a betrayal. I guess Tim Scott, it's it's not it's less about him personally, but it's about the general donor fantasy. Glenn Youngkin. Maybe Glenn Youngkin will come in and he can win. The party is like 70% MAGA and like 30% sort of old school Republican. That's basically what it is. Best case, it's like 60-40. And he just doesn't speak to them. The people who speak to the majority of the party are Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek. And everyone else on that stage represents the, you know, old school GOP and like wish casting that we could go back to a time before. He was on the North Charleston or Charleston City Council back in the day. One thing people forget about Tim Scott is he's never had a really competitive race, especially in recent cycles. Um, he's, li he's lived a kind of charmed political career. He was in the Charleston City Council. Um, he ran for the state house. I'm sure that was competitive. Primaries in South Carolina always are. Elected to the House, not super competitive primary. Appointed to the Senate by then-Governor Nikki Haley. And then, you know, once you're in the Senate in South Carolina and you're a Republican, especially like a young Republican like him, you're there for a long time. Uh, no one's going to really primary you unless you really mess up. He, so he's never really had to do like a high stakes debate like that before. And like it really showed that he was kind of nervous. Everyone else on that stage other than Burgum and I guess Asa Hutchinson, like they've all been in like big debates, very difficult primaries. Tim Scott hasn't. And so, yeah, Teddy Schleifer's obviously been reporting on this for over a year now that Larry Ellison is giving Tim Scott millions of dollars to his super PAC, but okay, man, what, what are you trying to get out of this? I, I, all of this, anytime any reporter, us included, talks to a donor, you have to remember, donors are donors for a reason. They're wealthy. They live in a bubble. Uh, they don't really hang out at the like Decorah, Iowa, Lincoln Day dinner and like talk to like normal Republican primary voters. They have these sort of fantasies from reading Politico and Axios and Puck all day long. 
and it's just very fundamentally out of step with where Republican voters are. And so, you know, I, I have a long rant against it's more about donors and their inclinations than about Tim Scott or Glenn Youngkin specifically. But this is Trump's party. And the people who have the best chance against Trump are just sort of like lower tier Trump impersonators. What do you think about Scott? I was surprised. It felt like he was nervous. And mm-hmm. this debate was definitely not top tier, but it is still a presidential debate. And it's, you know, welcome yeah. to the NFL. Yeah. And given that your honorary adopted home state of South Carolina, I'm curious what your reaction to Nikki Haley was. I thought she did well. I mean, like the Washington Post and Ipsos and 538 probably did a, the most qual- high quality post debate poll. And um, Nikki grew her share of support in terms of are you considering this person now by the biggest margin. She grew her support among women by 19 points, Republican women. I think her Margaret Thatcher line and her willingness to just like push back at Vivek for just mansplaining to her about Russia and Israel was pretty strong. I tweeted before the debate, like, I guarantee you Nikki Haley can't wait to just like peel this guy's skin off because like she's very competitive and he's very annoying. <laughs> and clearly, like, you know, I know the guy went to Harvard and worked in, like, biotech and venture. But, like, the dude just feels like he read a couple foreign policy books and then just, like, decided to run for president. So he doesn't really know what he's talking about. He's there to be a Trump shill. She's one of these people who that offends her because she came up through the trenches. And her and Christie specifically, they were the cool young new faces 10 years ago. They're not anymore. You know, and and Vivek gets in the way of that. But I thought she did well. The problem is, is that, again, she exists in the sort of anti-Trump lane. And that's not where most of the party is. If it came down to a head to head between Trump and Nikki Haley, like maybe she could beat him. But I don't see that. But she got big crowds in South Carolina on Monday where she was campaigning back home for the first time in that primary state since the debate. Um, She's going to raise some good money and get a second look from people. And she's in the conversation. Uh, The other thing about her, I would say, is like she is a workhorse. I remember like Rick Santorum. She's obviously more charismatic than Rick Santorum, but he won the Iowa caucuses in 2012 when it broke late. He had been all 99 counties. He was sort of like a fallback choice. Maybe we get to that point where like she has a strong showing in Iowa. Maybe she laps Ron DeSantis. Maybe she can go the distance. It's still a very much a long shot, but I do think it's clear that her, I think DeSantis and Vivek had the best debates. Uh, and you know what, Abby? Come on out for the next one because it's in California at the Reagan Library. California, here we come. <laughs> That's right. Abby, thanks as always for your insights about all the stuff on Capitol Hill I don't know about. Thanks for having me, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.